Sometimes the most dangerous things in life are the things you can't see. In this sermon series from Table Church, we're identifying some of those invisible enemies that want to take away your joy. Things like narcissism, greed, and isolation. So join us as we learn how to combat these enemies of the soul. And as always, feel free to reach out to us at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Let's read scripture together. Today we're reading out of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed you? Who appointed me, a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. So, I believe that there are different postures that we can take when it comes to Scripture. Different ways that we can position ourselves as we hear God's Word. One possible, possible way to position ourselves is uh, what I would call standing over the text. We can stand over the text. This is where we treat the Bible like something that we dissect something that we control, almost like a scientific experiment laid out before us. In this scenario, we are the objective one, and the Bible is a thing being explained. Now, this is the common posture that we take in culture today. We believe that we have answers and that we're coming to the Bible to see if the Bible measures up to our answers. And if it doesn't, then, well, we discard it, or we discard the part that we don't like. But as followers of Jesus, I believe that we must take a different posture. I would suggest that we take the posture of not standing over the text, but sitting under the text. Almost like a student sits under the teachings of their master. You see, when you sit under the text, you don't say things like, well, I like that part, but mm, that part didn't do it for me, and so I'm just going to ignore that. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we don't apply uh, appropriate interpretive strategies in order to understand what's really going on in the text, that's crucial. But listen, it's hard to think of a parable that um, the American church needs to sit under more than the one that Trevor just read to us. It's the story of a rich man who has a surplus year, thinks to himself, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And he builds bigger barns in order to store it. Now, the reason I say this is because this jabs us right in the funny bone, and it doesn't let go. We're in a series called uh, Enemies of the Soul. We're looking at uh, things that are often sneaky, things that often go undetected in us, but can nonetheless steal our joy and wreck our connection to God. 
Last week we talked about narcissism as an enemy of the soul. Today we're going to talk about greed. So these are like little ninjas that sneak in and steal our joy. Um, and it's occurred to me that we are basically the cultural embodiment of the seagulls in Finding Nemo. You know? Like the ones that are going, mine? Mine? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I wonder if they wrote that as a parody of us. We live in a time where even a meager living seems lavish to most people across the globe or in history. We're in an age of not only abundance, but we expect abundance. And we're not satisfied until we have it. This parable begins with a, a, a man who comes and tells Jesus to ask Jesus to adjudicate between him and his brother. Uh, he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And that might seem like a random thing to ask Jesus, but it's really not because in those days, a rabbi, which is what Jesus is, that means a teacher, a highly respected teacher. These rabbis were often the ones that people would come to to, to settle civil matters like this. And so he would have expected uh, that Jesus, this rabbi, would reach into his storehouse of knowledge of the law and of tradition and that he would produce some wise, profound saying that would help him know exactly how they should adjudicate this dispute. And now if this guy was expecting a straightforward answer, then I'm afraid he came to the wrong rabbi because Jesus almost never gives a straightforward answer when people ask him something. And Jesus' response begins with a warning. It says, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus' response here uh, does what many of Jesus' teachings do kind of sidesteps the direct question and tries to push down deeper into what's behind the question. Push down deeper into what's going on right here. And that's almost always what Jesus does. Okay, sure, I heard your question, but actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question behind the question is what I'm going to do. That's what Jesus says. He has no interest in being the family lawyer. He says, who appointed me, Judge, between you? He's interested in what's going on in the heart, this man's soul. Now, the thing that jumps out at me from Jesus' warning here is, is this phrase. He says, all kinds of greed. There's all kinds of greed. What does he say? He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And this would suggest that greed can take different forms. Now, there's the obvious kind of greed that we see in companies like Enron, bad property managers, people who don't care, who suffers as long as they get a big fat paycheck. That's obviously one kind of greed. But apparently there are other kinds of greed, and perhaps there's a kind of greed that parades around as wisdom, a, parade, a, a kind of greed that presents itself as virtue. This might be the kind of greed that Jesus is actually talking about in our parable today. This might also be why it makes us so uncomfortable if we really face this text. If we really sit under it, what we're going to find is that it's a little bit difficult to sidestep this one. Because what's so hard about this one is that like, technically nobody does anything wrong. <laughs> you, you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, and the priest and the Levite, they just walk on past this guy who's dying on the side of the road. And it's easy to say, wait a second, I'm not like them. There's nobody like that in this parable. This guy just has a good year. Saves what he makes. We call this parable the parable of the rich fool. 
Well, all this fool does is work hard and save well. I mean, these are downright virtues for us today. So this is what I mean when I say sitting under this text might make us squirm a little bit because it's really hard to dodge this one. It's really, there's not a lot we can point to and say, oh, that's, that's it. That's where I'm not like him, you know? And so I want to talk about greed today. Look, by the way, Table Church has been around for just over three years. I have never preached on money. I want you to know that. This is my first time ever doing it. Moses has preached on giving generosity and money before. I have never done it. And um, few things can stir emotions more sometimes than this when it comes to preachers talking about money, you know? Um, but I just want you to know that this is, uh, we're, nobody's out to get rich at Table Church. I promise. Now, if, I were, if we were honest, I, I, I think we'd probably admit that, that we kind of admire this guy. I mean, he's wealthy, he's frugal, he saves what he has, and he retires early. That sounds, sounds pretty good, you know? And yet God calls him a fool. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So I want to know what makes this guy a fool. And I want to know whether or not I'm doing the same thing. And how I can avoid being called a fool by God. And there's a few things in the text that might clue us in. Number one, here's what I notice: It's this. He's already rich. He's already rich, even before he gets the surplus of crops. It says, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded, yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So the fact that he's already rich means that at the very least, he's, he's already got enough to, to live off of. He's a rich man getting richer. Now, that might not necessarily be a problem, but if it weren't for the second part, is this. He thinks only of himself. He thinks only of himself. I went through and I counted. And this guy refers to himself 11 times in just four sentences, at least 11 times, depending on kind of what we do with the language translation. Uh, so he says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Not only is he having this conversation with himself, but by the end of it, he's referring to himself in the second person. Like, he's losing it a little bit. He's so in the center of his own universe. Now, not once does he think, hey, who else might benefit from all of this? Not once does he look to his neighbor and say, hey, you need some grain? I got plenty. No, that's not in there, is it? His biggest problem is figuring out where to put all of it. And finally, the third thing I notice is this, that he gives God no credit. Now, in the ancient world, it's a little different than today. In the ancient world, really, everybody just assumed that pretty much everything that happened was, had happened because of the, like some sort of a divine will. Um, you know, whether you, they were Christian or Jewish or pagan or whatever, uh, it, they would attribute almost everything to their gods or their god, whether it was rain or shine or you know, snow or harvest or famine or whatever. Like, everything came from the hand of God or the gods. This is just the view in the ancient world, whereas today, you know, we have got a little bit more of a mechanistic view of the universe. Some things are caused just by stuff, you know. Uh, that's not how it was back then. Everybody assumed that whatever happened uh, came from the hand of God. And yet it never occurs to this guy who lived in that time to ask himself, hey, who made the ground that my crops grow in? Who sends the rain 
that nourishes them? Who is responsible for this sudden surplus anyway? Never occurs to him to ask that question. He only sees the problem of not knowing where to put all of it. And so God comes to him and says, you fool. Tonight your life will be demanded from you. Who's going to get your stuff in? In other words, you don't get to take it with you when you're six feet under. Look, I don't care if you have a million dollars in your bank account today. You will not have a penny of it when you die. Someone else will get your stuff one way or another. Maybe your kids will get it. That's great. Who's going to have it in a thousand years, though? Who knows? This shows how silly it is to act like we really own anything. Anything that you have, anything that I have, it's mine for a moment, and then it's gone. Living with clenched fists never lasts for long one way or another. You're going to say goodbye to your earthly possessions. You don't take it with you. And so if I were to say in one, one sentence what I think it would look like for us to sit under this text today, here's what I think we could come away with. It's this. We must become more concerned with how much we're giving than with how much we're getting. We must become more concerned with how much we're giving than with how much we're getting. Think about this for a moment. The last six months, how much have you worried about how much you're getting paid? How much have you thought about a raise or a promotion or whether or not you're getting enough? Does it cross your mind at all? Now, how much time have you spent concerned about how much you're giving away? If you were to uh, measure out the two of those, which one would be higher? Are you more concerned with how much you're getting or with how much you're giving? I mean, has it ever crossed your mind lately that, oh man, I've, you know, inflation's high, but I'm doing okay. I wonder if there's others that could use this. Or, you know, I haven't increased my giving in a while. God is watching me. I should probably do something about that. Does this concern us or not? Now you're probably thinking, I mean, of course I don't worry so much about how much I'm giving. Why would I do that? Well, listen, according to the Bible, wealth is dangerous. You know that? According to the Bible, wealth is dangerous. Now notice what I said there. I, I chose my wording very carefully. I did not say that wealth is wrong, and I did not say that it is sinful. I said it is dangerous. It can easily become one of those other things if we're not careful. Look what Jesus says to his disciples. Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Rewind for a second. Go back to the first verse. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Look, if that one verse doesn't stop us dead in our tracks, then we have done a lot to buffer ourselves against the text. We are not sitting under it like perhaps we should. That ought to concern us. I mean, that ought to at least get our attention. You know what I mean? It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Wealth is dangerous because it has, it has more power to tempt us away from the things of God than almost anything else does. Wealth has like this, this magnetic pull that is perhaps stronger than anything else. And, and listen, only those who are truly secure in their faith will be able to resist its lure. Wealth in the hands of the spiritually immature is like scissors in the hands of a toddler. It can do immense damage to your soul if it is not held with the utmost care before God. 
Richard Foster says, we are dealing with dynamite. Wealth is not for the spiritual neophytes. They will be destroyed by it. Not for the spiritual neophytes. They will be destroyed by it. Only the person who has clean hands and a pure heart can ever hope to handle this without contamination. Notice, it is not wrong to be wealthy, but we who are wealthy are playing with fire. But it can be done. When the disciples heard Jesus' teaching about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, they asked the natural follow-up question, well, then who can be saved? Here's what he says. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. You hear that? It's impossible to enter God's kingdom with wealth by our own power. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, what this means is that for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, it requires an act of God. It requires divine mercy, power, and grace. Discipleship with wealth requires us to cling to God more than we ever thought we needed to. I know whenever you hear a sermon on money, a lot of us tend to think of our rich friend. You know, everybody's got a rich friend. Maybe you're somebody who's a rich friend. But before we are tempted to shove this sermon off on the person who we think is rich, maybe we should just acknowledge for a moment that we live in the most abundant country in the most abundant time. And obviously, things are tight for many of us right now. And the Wiseman household, I actually looked up this number just the other day. We are basically right smack in the median household income in Des Moines. Like we don't have a, we're not, you know, obscenely rich and we're also getting along fine, you know. Uh, like a loaf of bread is five times what it used to be. Like things are not easy for everybody right now. And I understand that. And there's obviously another sermon to be preached at some point about sound financial principles and these things. Today we're talking about generosity though. And today I think it would be appropriate for us to recognize how much we have. And that from many angles, we, lots of us at least in this room, would be considered rich. And I would be as well. So here's the good news. Wealth may be dangerous, but it is also an incredible opportunity. God blesses people with wealth, and these people steward a tremendous and sacred kingdom responsibility. The Bible refers to giving as a spiritual gift. It says in Romans 12, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So look, some of us apparently have like this gift of generosity, this, this ability to just give and give and give. Some of us are blessed in this way. And I know, I know that gift doesn't sound very cool, does it? You know what I mean? Like if we could somehow, like, I don't know, God's handing out slips of paper with gifts on them and we get the generosity one, I'm like, oh, I wanted healing or something cool, you know? Give generosity. I'm just going to give money away all the time? That doesn't sound very fun. Must be a sign I don't have the gift. I don't know. <laughs> but you know something? It's not for the faint of heart. Richard Foster says, this is no beginning step, no easy work. Only one skilled in spiritual warfare should ever attempt it. A person is needed who can receive $50,000 from the hand of God one day 
and a divine prompting, give it all away the next. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. Look, if you find a generous Christian, you probably just found a mature Christian. The gift of generosity is a high and a holy calling, and it is absolutely vital to the body of Christ. So some people have the gift of giving. However, we all have the responsibility of generosity. I'd go even further than that. I'd say this. We all need to give for our own sakes. See, the Christian tradition, we have this wonderful kind of built-in practice that helps us keep the snarling monster of greed on a short leash. It's called tithing. In the Old Testament, God expected his people to give 10% of what they made. In the New Testament, uh, things get a little bit less uh, black and white, I guess we could say. Jesus affirms the practice of tithing. In fact, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they, had, well, they, they were very meticulous about their tithe. They would even tithe like a tenth of their spices. You know, a little, think about your little bottle of spices at home or your little container of spices. They would take a tenth of that and they'd just be like, you're the tenth, you know. Like they, that's what they were doing. And Jesus sees that. He says, hey, you know, you Pharisees, you tithe a tenth of your mint and your dill and your cumin. Good for you but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. He says, you should have done both. Tithe, yes, he says, but not at the expense of things like mercy, love, and justice. And so Jesus affirms tithing, apparently gives it the thumbs up, uh, but then we also find in the New Testament that it kind of pushes us past tithing. And once, this, once again, remember, Jesus isn't always looking at the first question. He wants to get to the question behind the question. He wants to get to the heart. It's asking us to push beyond tithing and into generosity. And so what this means is that there is no clear answer to the question, how much should I give? The Bible's answer to that question is, yup. Now, our denomination, or the Wesleyan Church is our name of our denomination, uh, asks its members, if you become a member of, uh, of, of Table Church, the the, the requirement is to tithe 10%. Uh, that's what it means, part of what it means to be a member at Table Church. But our aim should always be to see that as a starting point. And, and we don't ask it as though it's a biblical requirement. We ask it because we think that it's crucial for our own spiritual welfare. I have tithed 10% of what I make since I got my first job when I was 14. Today, we continue to tithe 10% back to Table Church. God is faithful to us. We're able to also support Poetis every month, a mission partner in Zambia. We're also able to support a compassion child every month. But I still find that my heart has a long way to go in slaying this enemy of the soul. In fact, let me tell you something about me that I hope doesn't make you think much worse of me. Before, um, not, not long ago, I was... I was uh, with a friend of mine from high school and his dad was there as well and I was telling them about Table Church and all the things that we were doing and um, they were intrigued by Table Church and wanted to support us best they could. His, before I left, my friend's dad pulled out his checkbook and wrote me a check for $500 and handed it and said, this is for the church. I said, well, thank you, that's awesome. I tucked it in my pocket and I didn't look at it again until I got home. Once I got home, I pulled the check out of my pocket and I noticed something. He had written it out to Phil Wiseman, not to Table Church. And I was like, ooh. And a little voice in my head said, you could deposit that in your account 
and just leave it there and no one would ever know. In fact, you have to put it in your account in order to give it to Table Church. And I had this little voice, that little thought in my head. You know what? That $500, when I deposited it in my account, sat there a little longer than it probably should have. Just being honest. And of course, as I think these things, these voices come to my head, then the truth would always come and say, nope, he gave it to the church. And then a voice would say, he probably actually just kind of meant it for you. That's probably kind of what he meant. It's like, nope, he said, this is for your church. (laughs) But what I found is that money messes with your head. It's like the ring and Lord of the Rings, Frodo standing there with it, you know, going crazy, like thinking all these bad things, his friends are out to get him and all that, like it does something to you, you know? And I did give the money to the church, by the way. And when I did, it's like a weight lifted off of me. It's like I felt great about it. But I can see why the Bible treats wealth almost like a force with a mind of its own. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is a master, according to Jesus. It's like this sentience to it. It can control you. It's a force. It's got a power. Old school translations of the Bible say you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon was this word that we would use to describe money, almost had a personified sense to it, like a demonic force, the demon of mammon. You can't serve them both, Jesus says. That's why whenever we talk about giving a table church, it's very much not to get money. It's because we think it's crucial to our spiritual well-being. So what if we flipped the script on money? What if we got more concerned with how much we are giving than how much we're getting because we don't want to serve the master of mammon. And so I want to pause for a moment here and ask you to take your spiritual pulse. Do like a heart check here. How, how is this sermon affecting you right now? There's much more that could be said, of course, about these matters. Um, but are you bothered, you know? Do you have a lot of yeah buts? Going on in your head? Yeah, but what about this and what about this and what about this? I can't talk about every possible scenario here. But I can sit under a text, a parable, that honestly calls us to a higher level of generosity. But on the other hand, are you feeling inspired? Are you excited to find more ways to be generous? Does the idea of giving more excite you? And if that's the case, then let's slay this monster of greed. If you're bothered right now, then ask yourself why what that might be a sign of. And so if you want to move into deeper levels of generosity, there, the way to begin is, listen, it's not through some like Herculean effort to give a whole bunch all the time. I don't think that's probably the best way to do it. I think the way to do it is to start small and then increase from there over time. Look, maybe there's no way, just no way for you to give 10%. You know, I'm not asking anybody to like go into debt in order to give money. That wouldn't make sense. Maybe it's not 10%, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 2%. If you're giving zero, then anything is more than zero. Worry less about the amount and more about the heart behind it. Only you and God can decide what actual generosity looks like for you. I would encourage you to get to at least 10%. I believe that that's not too much for God to ask. But whatever the case, I want to challenge you to commit to giving. I think it is a biblical mandate that we do support our local church. Uh, with our finances, by the way. Um, I hope that we can go beyond that and and give to other causes in the world as well. Um, But I do think that Christians are called to support financially their their local church. 
And so here's the bottom line, like I said earlier, I promise nobody's ever going to get rich off of Table Church. But we do have dreams as a community. Uh, we uh, aspire to giving 10% of what we bring in out back into the community. But even more than that, um, you know, I, I'm watching, like, for example, our, our middle school cohort. And in the next couple years, I'm looking down in the future, and I'm like, that's going to go like this. You know, like, we're going to have a lot of teenagers pretty soon and adolescents. How cool would it be to be able to hire somebody like a youth pastor or somebody like that to disciple our, our young people? We can't do that right now. It's just, it's just not a reality. But I would sure love to be able to at some point. And so there's all sorts of really good things that we could do if we come together in generosity as a church. So would you consider living a generous life? And would you consider letting Table Church be the beneficiary? As you came in, you see a little bag of dimes. There's 10 dimes in there. And, and I'm just gonna invite you guys to, to kind of put this into practice a little bit today. Um, there's 10 in there. And, and as we play this next song, I'm gonna invite you to come down and drop one of those 10 dimes on this table here. Now, some of you are gonna be like, I'm just gonna give you all the dimes. I'm just gonna leave them all there. And I'm gonna tell you not to do that. Keep nine of the dimes. There's a couple reasons why. First of all, I want us to remember that just as you were given that money today, really all that we have is given to us in some level. It all comes from the hand of God to some degree. And so I want you to walk away knowing that you received something that you didn't earn. But second of all, I also want you to be able to see what one dime, how little one dime is compared to the 10. You've still got nine dimes. You've still got quite a bit after having given away just one of the 10. And so maybe it'll just be a little illustration for us to see, um, you know, what generosity could really start to look like for us. And when you come down, there's some cards with some QR codes uh, on them that you can take with you in order to kind of help you kickstart generosity. One is just a QR code that directs you to a link uh, to give to Table Church. The other one is one that will help you set up automatic tithing. So if you don't have that right now, we can set that up and helps us a lot in our budgeting process to know that we have like X number of dollars kind of guaranteed month to month or week to week or whatever it might look like. So I'd like to invite you to take one of those cards and consider just spend some time in prayer about what it looks like. And again, I'm not trying to force anyone to do anything. You know, I'm just asking you to pray and to say, Lord, what does this look like in my life? Not because necessarily even Table Church needs the money, but because we need to be generous for our own sakes for our own relationship with God, for our own witness to the world, we have to slay this enemy of the soul. And it's probably one of the hardest ones to do. All right, let's pray. Well, Jesus, uh, on one hand, talking about money doesn't seem very spiritual, um, and yet it's the thing you talked about the most. And so apparently there's a connection there. And so Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to be disciples when it comes to our money. God, that we would take up our cross when it comes to our money. God, that we would just live with open hands when it comes to our money. And I know that there are those of us here for whom, you know, maybe we'd like to give a bunch, but it's just, we just can't right now. And so, Lord, maybe there's a, there's a, I don't know, conversation about finances there. Maybe there's something you can do in their lives in order to assure them that, that you've got them. Lord, for many of us here today, I believe that there's something we could probably adjust, something we could probably do without that would free up more opportunity for us to bless others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us in our hearts, that you would put your finger on that thing. Lord, may we not be fools.
May we not just hoard what we have. May we see every penny that we make as an opportunity to bless. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.